This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell? What the hell is going on is there was a leak of a Supreme Court decision, an early draft, overturning Roe versus Wade, and a lot of people's collective heads have exploded. There is a ton of commentary going on on this. You have protesters that have unleashed on the homes of conservative Supreme Court justices. Justice Alito has actually had to leave his home and move his family on the advice of the Supreme Court Security Service. They have their own police department, which many people didn't know, that's designed to protect the justices. And it looks like Roe is going to be overturned. And there are some people who are not so happy about that, Danny. Now, this is one of those issues where you and I disagree. You you are pro-choice. I am pro-life. So what are your thoughts on this whole uh, whole development? We were chatting about this before we started recording, and I think, Mark, you said that I and our return guest, John Yu, uh, are of the same opinion, which is that we're both pro-choice, but we don't like Roe. And I think the very simple reason for that, and I won't speak for him, but I will speak for me, is that Roe is bad law. I don't I like it. agree with that. I, I, yeah, he would. <laughs> I don't like it when we are governed by dictators. I don't like it when our justices, who really do have extraordinary power in this country, if you think about it, I don't like it when they interpret the Constitution in ways that are, I think, beyond the scope of the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution about abortion. And those people who argue that this isn't about abortion, it's about women's rights and women's bodies, I would argue that it's not just about women's rights and women's bodies because we all know what happens at the termination of a pregnancy, right, which is that there is a life. And, you know, that you can make an argument that one life is more important than another. And I think there are some very interesting and important discussions to be had there. And I hope that our political bodies will, will have them. But the notion that somehow our Constitution speaks to the permission to end one life does not seem to me to be correct. So, I mean, just to put this in context, again, I'm pro-life. I, I'm, I am We are aware. So I just want to be upfront about where I'm coming from because we don't talk about this issue very much on the podcast. So right. uh, I just want people to understand that. The United States is one of just seven out of 198 countries that allow elective abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy. Two of the, of the seven others are China and North Korea. If you look at Europe, 39 of 42 European nations, including France and Germany, bar elective abortions after 15 weeks and not one permits them for all nine months of pregnancy. So when it comes to abortion, we are an outlier in the world in terms of the extremism of our policies in allowing these abortions. And, you know, you, you're you hearing a lot from the Democrats about how, well, you know, the polls show 60, 70 percent of Americans don't want to overturn Roe v. Wade. There was a poll that showed that 66 percent of Americans believe that if you overturn Roe v. Wade, that abortion will be illegal in the entire country the next day, um, which is not the case. I don't think most people understand it. And then when you start digging into the polling, there was a YouGov poll the other day shows that 64 percent of Americans think that abortion should be banned after 15 weeks or earlier. If you'd say after three months of pregnancy, the first trimester, it's 54 percent. 15 weeks is the Mississippi law at the heart of the Supreme Court case. So I I don't want to speak for you, but I don't think you or a majority of Americans support what has become the Democratic Party's orthodoxy, which is taxpayer-funded abortion on demand up until the moment of birth. I think Americans may not be fully where I am, which is that abortion should not be permitted in almost any case except the health of the mother. That's where I stand on it. But I think they're a lot closer to me than they are to the Democratic orthodoxy of and abortions anywhere, uh, anytime, for any reason, at any point in pregnancy up until the moment of birth, which was just affirmed by Jen Psaki as being Joe Biden's position, and also, by the way, taxpayer-funded. Right. Well, yes, there's a whole world of politics around this, and I'm not a big lover of 
polls either, uh, not because I don't believe their data, but because I believe that it's not polls that are meant to govern this country. It's voters that are meant to govern this country. And people can make these choices. Yes, I, I agree with you, Mark. I think the position of most people is that after a certain moment, although people are arbitrary, whether it's 15 weeks or six weeks or it's 20 weeks, but at a certain moment, people do begin to believe that it creeps closer to what I think you think it is from the outset, which is murder. I think there are interesting statistics about this as well, though. And, you know, we're having this argument with all of the vim and vigor of yesteryear. And after 1973, after the Roe decision, abortions did increase dramatically up through 1980. Um, And then in 1980, they began a a downhill turn. And the reason... Still enormously high. It's actually much less high than it was then. It's about half what it was then in this country, uh, which is... So how many per year? uh, Now you're asking me a hard question. So in 2017, the abortion rate stood at 13.5 abortions per 1,000 women of childbearing age. That's how they track it. And that's the Guttmacher Institute that attracts it in one sense. The CDC, which doesn't require statistics, so states have to actually voluntarily give them, puts it at 11.2 abortions per 1,000 women of childbearing age. Again, I think these numbers are not dispositive because a lot of them are given voluntarily, but I don't think there's any question in anybody's mind that the numbers have gone down. Part of the reason, obviously, is because of the availability of of the so-called morning-after pill, which obviates the need for people to go and, and have a medical procedure, which is obviously what an abortion is. But, you know, look, I feel much more comfortable having a national discussion where people have the right to go and change their leaders. I feel much less comfortable about this when it's the Supreme Court that makes this decision. I just, I think in a democracy, the states have to make these choices. I I think it should be in the hands of the states. I hope that the pro-life movement doesn't turn around after having argued for years that this should be handed back to the states and then try to federalize it just as I don't think the... uh, But Mitch McConnell said that. Why 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 do you think he said that? I don't know. So just for everybody who didn't pay attention to Mitch McConnell's latest utterances, Mitch McConnell said on the Sunday shows this week that he thought that Congress might try to legislate a complete ban on abortion. First of all, I, think these I don't are, think I think can. these are show votes because I don't if Mitch McConnell's not going to get rid of the filibuster to do this. And either are the Democrats going to be able to get rid of the filibuster because Joe Manchin won't allow them to do it because both he's against the filibuster and he's against abortion. He happens to be pro-life Democrat, which is very rare these days, but apparently it's dispositive in this case. So I don't think either side is, is going to be able to do that, though the Democrats are doing it because they seem to think that this is politically advantageous to them because they have, I think, a 17-point gap in enthusiasm going into the midterm elections. And so they think that this is going to be the, uh, the panacea that helps them galvanize their base Again, I know you don't like polls, but there was a Monmouth poll in 2019 that showed that there's only about 2% of people who actually vote on this as their main issue, their number one issue. Well, but that's and, because Roe was 50 years ago. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's so that may not be accurate for this election. Well, so let's say it goes up a little bit more. About 30% of people for whom this is a really important issue skews about 60, 40 conservative to liberal, pro-life to pro-choice. Mm-hmm. So actually conservatives care more about this issue and are more likely to be energized by this. And on top of that, I think that the Democrats seem to think that, you know, there's the, the old drug dealers maxim from, what was the, what was the, what was the movie with uh, Al Pacino? Um, Serpico? Which one? No, no, no. The Are one, uh, uh, Scarface. Okay. The Al Pacino's line in the movie Scarface where he says the drug dealer's maxim is don't get high on your own supply. They're reading these polls in a way that really doesn't reflect the opinions of the American people on it. The Democratic orthodoxy, even into the 1990s, was safe, legal, and rare. That was Bill Clinton's line. That's no longer the Democratic orthodoxy on abortion. They got rid of rare in their 2012 platform. In 2016, the platform became taxpayer funding for abortion, getting rid of the Hyde Amendment. And today, I mean, the state of New York lit up the Freedom Tower to celebrate the passage of a law that removed almost all restriction on abortion up until the third trimester. Illinois repealed the Partial Birth Abortion Act uh, in their state. I don't think that the American people are for that, regardless of whether they're pro. I mean, a lot of people who who say they're pro-choice are against that. They look at the numbers, pro-life, pro-choice. Pro-choice doesn't mean pro-choice in the third trimester. (laughs) A lot of people who are pro-choice also support restrictions on abortion, pretty significant restrictions on abortion. First of all, it's kind of pathetic that this is what you're counting on to save you. The murder of unborn children is is your political salvation, but I don't think it's going to be the political salvation uh, that they think it is.
Well, only time will tell. But in the meantime, we haven't talked about the leak. And part of the reason we haven't is because we've saved it for our conversation with John Yu, because he, as a former Supreme Court clerk, really has a unique insight into how that works and what the timing was. And so for those of you who don't remember him from our From his many appearances on the (laughs) podcast. From his many appearances on on the podcast, uh, John is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. He's also a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, also at the Hoover Institution. And a former clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas. That's absolutely true. So he's been in the room when these decisions have made, and he's going to tell us how it works. Over to our interview. John, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me back, guys. It's great to have you. So you were a clerk for Justice Thomas. So you've been in the room when these decisions are being debated and and all the rest of it. Talk to us about the Dobbs case and what happens after the oral arguments take place. And where does this leak of this draft opinion, where where in that process did this happen? And, and what does that all mean? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I think the actual timing of the leak has a lot to do with the way these things work at the court and the schedule and everything, if you look at it closely. So oral argument in this case was heard on December 1st. And that's when, after months of briefing, the justices, right, they ask questions of both sides. And then the important thing is that then they retreat to the conference room, which all by themselves, just the nine of them, no staff, no one taking notes, and they discuss it. This is just so after that oral week, arguments, right? Either just after argument or um, later that week. So it depends on the scheduling. But by December 3rd, that Friday, so oh, December 1st was a Wednesday. So by December 3rd, Friday, the nine justices knew initially how this case was going to come out. They talk together um, and then they vote. And then the chief justice, who's in the majority, if he's in the majority, assigns the opinion. Or if the chief justice is not in the majority, then the senior justice left gets to assign the opinion. And so that's significant because the fact that Alito drafted the leaked document shows that Roberts was not in the majority because almost without a doubt, I think Roberts would have kept it for himself. You remember the oral arguments? I think we talked about them uh, on the podcast that uh, the three liberal justices were pretty adamant about stare decisis, you know, respect for the past being given to Roe and uh, most of the other justices questioning the foundations of Roe, questioning whether they had to stick with that old case now, almost 50 years old. And Chief Justice Roberts, all by himself in the middle, trying to say, well, can we let Mississippi have its ban on early abortions, but at the same time not strike down Roe and Casey uh, and get the court embroiled in politics? And nobody went for Roberts's suggestion. So it looks to me like Justice Thomas assigned the opinion and he assigned it to Justice Alito for reasons we can discuss. So then, and this is why this is interesting, so then the opinion that you leave, that everyone's seen now because of Politico and looks like Chief Justice Roberts uh, admitted was authentic in this press release he issued. So if you look at the draft, it's dated February 10th. And that's interesting because that's two months after the oral argument. That's roughly about when the person who's drafting it sends it around for the first time to the other justices. And then there's this negotiation. You don't see any of this in the draft, and you haven't seen much of the leak address this. But after that first draft goes out, then you see what you, me, and everyone in Washington loves, which is haggling and bargaining. And the issue was called a joint memo. So say this came around and Justice Kavanaugh said, you know, Sam, old buddy, I'd really like to join your opinion, but you got to do these five things for me. Or I'd like you to add this. Or I'd like you to take this out. That goes on for a while, for months, in fact. So then each time, say, Justice Alito says, Sit, Brad, old friend, love your hair, and I'm going to take your suggestions. And then Justice Alito would send around a new draft. And a new draft, each time someone joins his memo and he makes accommodations and changes. And there'll be some justices who will say, I'm not going to join, I'm going to dissent. We assume that uh, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer on that side. And you also might have justices like Thomas who say, I agree that Roe and Casey should be overturned, but I have a different reason why. That's called a concurrence. Now, the reason why the timing of the leak is so significant, I think, is because the beginning of May, 
this is around when all that haggling starts to come to an end. You know by early May how the votes are going to come down, and that's when the other justices start to circulate their dissents, concurrences. So I think the reason it's leaked, because whoever had this draft must have had it since around the beginning of February, hasn't given us any of the other drafts that came after it that I've been saying you know, reflect the haggling and bargaining, because I think they want to provoke a response against the majority opinion. And so they're showing us, in a way, the most robust, extreme, aggressive version of the opinion before it gets kind of watered down through negotiation. And since last week, I'd say the votes are probably locked in on the court. No one's going to switch sides now. And so whoever leaked this might have hoped, oh, maybe Roberts could pull someone away from the majority. Maybe you're going to see that five justice majority that's in support start to fragment or the opinion gets too watered down. Maybe even the votes might change. But by early May, I think at that point, whoever leaked it saw that things were pretty much set in stone. Do you think this came from the left or from the right? Because there's one argument coming from the right. And also they've, they've said that even though the, the actual text wasn't leaked, someone leaked to the Wall Street Journal editorial page the internal deliberations on the right. That leak seemed to come from the right. That the idea was that maybe Kavanaugh or Coney Barrett or somebody was getting cold feet and this was to sort of block them in. Or do you think it came from someone on the left or both? I think the theories that it was someone on the right is just like people on the left engaging in the most ridiculous, wishful <laughs> thinking or such utterly malicious disinformation that Mary Poppins might come down from on high and censor their speech. <laughs> because, uh, because I, I, and I've seen this from the inside, right? If you have that five justice majority, you don't want to change anything, right? You don't want anybody to get cold feet. Leaking a draft like this, all it would create for you would be uncertainty, right? Even if you're, you know, worried about them maybe concurring differently or pulling aside and so on, unless you no you longer still have the don't five. want to risk that. Yeah, even if you have the five, you might still have concurrences that will allow you to get a lot of what you want. And the other thing is, if you look at the opinion closely, so a lot of people think that Justice Kavanaugh is the shakiest fifth vote, in part because he's said many times he wants to be collegial, and, you know, part because of his testimony saying, you know, Roe is a precedent he respects. But the thing that I thought was really telling was in the oral argument, he made a big deal of why the court should not be bound by past cases when it, the court got something really wrong on something that's important. And he made the great point that Brown versus Board of Education would never have been decided, the case which ended segregation in the country, because there was already an older case that said segregation was okay. And if you look at Alito's part of the opinion, he basically cut and pasted out of a Kavanaugh opinion on some insignificant case, all of Kavanaugh's discussion of precedent and when you could overturn it, he just dropped it right into his opinion. That's a way of him going to Kavanaugh and saying, I really want your vote. You sign on with me. You're, you know, I'm going to basically have that part of the opinion written by you. It's very hard for someone like Kavanaugh to say, oh, thanks a lot for that, Sam. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm gonna. I, so I don't. I don't really see the politics of that that majority dropping out. Even if it did, if you're a conservative, introducing a league like this could make it even worse from your perspective, because you know at the very least, whatever the reasons are, you're probably going to uphold the Mississippi law. Even Chief Justice Roberts wants to uphold the Mississippi law, which right, allows abortion only in the first 15 weeks, and then. So it seems to me, I just go with the Occam's razor, the simplest answer is probably what's going on, which is a liberal, I would think probably law clerk. I would hate to think it would be a justice, maybe an employee of the court leaked it because they want to try to get one of the justices to flip under the enormous political pressure that's going to be brought upon them between now and the end of June when the court usually issues all its opinions. John, I have a quick yes or no question for you, and then I, I want to talk about the actual case at hand. Do you think they're ever going to find the leaker? No. <laughs> you guys, you guys, you, we've all been in government, right? Yeah. We've leaked. We've seen people leak. We've been leaked upon. Leak for yourself. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was you, Mark. I knew it was you. <laughs> and, you know, all these times we've seen leaks, right? This is like, what do they call it? Oh, it's a mole hunt. I love a good old-fashioned mole hunt. 
But we've seen these leak investigations happen when the circle of people is actually much smaller than this circle of people, and it's involved classified information, national security importance, and they still never catch the leaker. It's not the FBI that's doing it. It's the U.S. It's the marshals at the court who have no experience and have never conducted an investigation like this. And then finally, it's hard to, for me to see if it's a crime. And so if it's not a crime. How do you force anyone to answer any of your questions? Jonathan Turley had an interesting theory, which was that he said at some point they'll bring the FBI in to question them. And at that point, whoever leaked it, you've gone from an ethical violation to if you lie about it to the FBI, you've you've committed a crime. So at some point, somebody's going to have to make a decision to either fess up or commit a felony. You know, this is because you're assuming that the clerks are adults. <laughs> so, you know, one, thing we should, one thing we should explain to the listeners, and this is bizarre that the law that we do this in the law, is each justice gets four clerks. Those four clerks are generally hired only one year out of law school. So you have 26 and 27-year-olds who are the guardians of the highest secrets of our judiciary. They are trusted with, right, Brown versus Bordenford comes out, decisions which have billions of dollars of impact on the economy. You know, Watergate, Capes case, Pentagon Papers, you know, on and on. Um, They've never leaked before. But I could see one of them being idealistic enough, or put it differently thinking Roe was more important than the independence of the courts to leak it. And then that person, they might just say, I'm not going to answer any questions, right? They're so young and don't care so much about the institution. They might just say, yeah, I'm not going to answer any questions. I have a right to privacy. You want to fire me, you can fire me. That person might well be welcomed as a hero by people on the progressive side of the world. I feel like we spent the first half of our podcast reviewing the play at which President Lincoln was shot because, uh, well, I mean, the leak is important, but at the end of the day, this is much more consequential than a leak. And obviously that was exactly, as you said, the kind of thinking that I think probably motivated whoever did. So, John, for our audience, but also to educate me again, what is wrong with Roe v. Wade? That's a great point, Danny. The the leak itself has taken over all the attention that it distracts us from the opinion itself. And people can be different sides on abortion as a policy matter. I mean, I'm uh, pro-choice as a policy matter. I, you know, as a voter in California, where I'm going to have a chance to vote on it soon, I assume, you know, I would uh, vote to have, I think, basically where Americans are, you know, uh, limited, if no right, in the first trimester, and then viability being the point where the state's interests become greater. The problem with Roe is that it took that kind of decision away from the voters. Roe poses a constitutional right or extracts a constitutional right to abortion from a text that doesn't mention abortion. And Justice Alito's opinion, if Roe were going to be overturned, if Casey were going to be overturned, this is the kind of opinion that you would want to do. It's extraordinarily thorough, goes through all the arguments. And his main argument is the problem with Roe was that the states control most life or death decisions in our country. Right? They control the criminal laws, the death penalty, euthanasia. You could go on and on. They control the laws about the family. All these important decisions are in the hands of the states. So why is abortion singled out and taken away from them? Justice Alito says at the time of the passage of the 14th Amendment, the majority of states had made abortion a crime. So he says it's hard to believe back in 1868 that people thought the Constitution meant states could not control abortion. And then this is the interesting part. He says, but we have allowed the growth of rights, privacy rights, other kinds of rights that have emerged over history and tradition to become recognized as constitutional. And then he says, this is the interesting part of the opinion. And this is, of course, the part that's getting a lot of attention now uh, from the few who are really focused on the merits is, but abortion is different. Abortion is different than, say, the right to use a contraceptive. He even says, this is clear, he says, it's even different from gay marriage, which we are not addressing this opinion. He says, in in those cases, the state wasn't regulating what was going on here to protect its view of when human life began. So you allow gay marriage. No one else is harmed. You allow the use of contraceptives or earlier decisions, which allow people to decide how to raise their children and so on. He says, the state's interest in protecting unborn human life was not at issue there. And so he says this 
decision is going to overturn Roe, but we're not going to get rid of every case we've decided expanding uh, the right of privacy or articulating new kinds of rights that were not explicitly set out in the Constitution. And this is most important, and he ends with this, this I think this is a more true to the constitutional structure than the Roe regime is we're returning it back to the people where you all, he says, you know, the American people can negotiate, debate, persuade each other, make 50-50 decisions. I hate to say this, you know, make Solomonic cut the baby in half decisions, but right, people can return this to the political process. So let me ask you to put on your law professor hat for a second. And, you know, I mean, because even Ruth Bader Ginsburg was critical of the Roe decision. Make the best argument for Roe. So the best argument for Roe, and this is interesting, this was, I wouldn't say a mistake, but this is a path Roe could have gone down, which it didn't. Roe did not base its holding on a law that burdened women unfairly or even unconstitutionally. So it basically, it almost as if uh, Roe thought the right of abortion was sort of shared between the doctor and the patient. The better argument a lot of liberal law professors say is that Roe should not have been based in this um, the phrase is a due process clause of the Constitution, which doesn't even sound like it's about rights. Right? The, the due process clause says the state can't take away your life, liberty, or property without due process. Well, that also implies that it can't take away your life, liberty, or property if it just does it in the right way. Instead, what law professors think is uh, the better decision would have been under what we call the equal protection clause, which means that the government can't make irrational, unfair, pretextual distinctions between groups of people and treat them differently. So the the most obvious use of the Equal Protection Clause is to prevent the government from making distinctions between people based on race. So people say, well, don't laws that uh, regulate abortion, restrict the right to abortion, don't those impact women much more heavily than men? And then what's the reason why they do that at some point? This argument goes, at some point, the woman's right the woman's right to be treated fairly, to have control over her own autonomy, means that the state can't completely restrict the right to an abortion. So that's sort of the most persuasive route. Why didn't they, why didn't the court go down that road? It makes sense, but it's also, it's also consistent with the arguments that people who are pro-choice or pro-abortion make, uh, which is that restrictions on abortion force women who do not otherwise wish to carry a child to carry a child to term. I've always wondered that, Danny. I think I mean, it's a good question. We could. I wish uh, Justice Blackmun were around. We could ask him. He was the one who drafted Roe back in the Burger Court days. Uh, part of it might be that up until the point of Roe, the court had, and this even is true of the cases after Roe, such as the gay marriage decision, they were all decided really under this due process clause because that had been the clause the court had mostly used rather than the equal protection clause. And so the people back then, I thought they just went ahead with, you know, we, we know this one works, so why, why, you know, why break it? But what they didn't imagine was a world where the court might have gone too far and it begins to question itself. The American people begin to question it. And it would have been much better for the majority of Roe or even the court in Casey in 1992 where you know, three Republican justices, uh, Souter, O'Connor, and Kennedy, joined together to keep Roe alive. They didn't change the basis of it either. And so they had the chance, but I think they felt they wanted to, and this is, goes to this other argument I think has died out now, but used to be the main argument for Roe, is more of a, let's just respect precedent. Let's just not tamper and overthrow the past. We've had abortion rights now protected by the courts for 50 years almost now. So why mess with it? And I remember when we talked about the oral argument back in December, the interesting thing is that liberals on the court, very smart people, were not defending Roe on the merits. They weren't even claiming Roe really is in the Constitution. All they were arguing was just respect the past. Roe was decided in the 70s. Our society is organized around a constitutional right to abortion. So let's not change anything. Let's not disrupt anything uh, anymore. But, you know, as you point out, Danny, that avoids the question whether Roe made sense. It is all much more complex than I think either side likes to make it out to be. And I've uh, enjoyed several arguments with family members over the past over the past couple <laughs> couple of weeks on this. As, 
Sadly, Danny, I know you're married to a lawyer. There's still time for you to change that mistake. <laughs> Actually, it's with my brother, the doctor, who I've had the, the most oh. un- unpleasant argument, and needless to say, with my much younger daughters as well. And and it is this question, again, of, of burden, you know, this sense that particularly younger women, and I think one's views on this do become more moderate as, as one ages for a whole variety of reasons, but that for women who are in states like Mississippi or who are in places that are much more likely to enact much more serious restrictions on abortion rights, then you're going to put women in a position where they are going to be going to back rooms to doctors illegally or they're going to have to go out of state. And, you know, my argument is, well, you know, get a bus and go out of state. And they seem to view that as something that is unconscionable. Help us talk this through. It's really a hard one. Well, that also brings up the the, uh, question about what can Congress do about it? You know, how does the political system respond to Dobbs if this draft is really what's going to be coming out of the court? Great question. Yeah, there's a lot of things Congress can do. One of them, as you said, is making it easier for people to leave states where abortion rights are limited, say Mississippi itself or Texas, you know, which has passed an even a more restrictive law, or there are some states which have these trigger laws, which will try to ban abortion almost entirely if the court reverses Roe. So the federal government could give money directly to people who want to travel out of state for abortion. In fact, I think my home state of California here right now is considering a law that will fund people from coming out of state at California taxpayers' expense to come here and have an abortion. So you could, you could do, but you could do a lot of other things. I mean, I thought the that court was wrong. The Hyde years. Wouldn't it? If it was federal? Yeah, they would have, Congress would have to change that. Congress could include, this would be much more controversial. Congress could require hospitals and other you know, you know, medical care facilities that receive federal funding. Again, this would have to be Congress receive federal funding. If they want to receive Medicare, Medicaid funds, they would have to provide abortion under some kind of framework. Recall how controversial it was whether Obamacare would include contraceptives. And then here's another thing that I think technology uh, might also start to change, that if we really start to see widely available morning-after pills, pills that could induce an abortion within a certain period of time, what if the federal government just paid for those to be free and shipped directly to anybody who wants them, no matter where they live? So the combination of the spending clause, you know, Congress's power of the funds, plus technology, might still allow the federal government to encourage abortions, but what it can't, what the federal government can't do, is coerce states to change their own laws. So the you know, federal government can't directly command Texas to say, Texas, you must provide for right for an abortion. So Congress this week is voting on a bill that basically does that, and that's a futile effort because that's that's clearly unconstitutional. As I tell my liberal friends, if Congress can go out and mandate a federal right to abortion and preempt state law, then Congress could also pass a law saying we ban a right to abortion and preempt California and New York's laws. So you think it would be unconstitutional to codify Roe? Oh, yeah. In fact, there's I don't know why they're wasting their time. Well, politically, they might be doing it for a reason, but constitutionally, it's a waste of time because there's actually other Supreme Court cases that say Congress cannot, whatever power it's using, Commerce Clause, the 14th Amendment, whatever, it can't use that power to try to overturn a Supreme Court decision interpreting the Constitution. So they can do things with their spending power and taxing, but what you can't do is Congress go out and just say, well, the Supreme Court just did this, we're going to change it. (laughs) And we just order all the states to obey our law, not the Supreme Court decision. Actually, Congress is Congress tried to do this in a conservative direction. I, I don't know if you guys, we were all working in Congress around this time. Remember the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? Justice Scalia, with a liberal majority on the court, narrowed the rights of religious minorities for protection by the courts. And so uh, conservatives in Congress, I mean, this was a very popular bill. I think it only had one no vote in both houses. President Clinton signed it, and it said, we are restoring the rights of religious minorities to the way they were before the Supreme Court decision. And then the Supreme Court, right, these guys, they might be conservative or liberal, but they all agree they're the most powerful body. Who are these people in Congress? <laughs> Who are they? How dare they? So they unanimously struck down the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. They said, you can't try to overturn us. <laughs> 
So you're you're a former Orrin Hatch staffer. So like Danny and me, you have the distinction of having served in the legislative body of this of this. Uh, yeah, and this the Religious country. Freedom Restoration Act was it was one of his big you know was a big legislative priorities. He's yeah. the one who got it passed. But that's right. Yeah. And by the way, I'm very sorry, sorry to hear about his his passing. I know uh, I know you worked for him and loved him a lot. Yeah, he was a great guy to work for. But do you think there's votes for any of these things you've suggested in Congress? I don't think there are. I don't think that, you know, the Hyde Amendment has been in place for so long. You know, you can't do anything as long as they, unless it has the Hyde Amendment attached. So I can't imagine Congress authorizing morning after pills being paid for by the government. I think you guys have your fingers on the pulse way better than I do all the way out here about what's going on in Washington. But Berkeley? if I were... <laughs> you don't have your finger on the pulse of the country in Berkeley, John? <laughs> uh, you you killed my effort at false modesty. <laughs> you know, the thing with this was like, don't you guys think, think about it, like when you guys were working for Hounds, I was working for Hatch. Well, I would go to Senator Hatch about if this had happened now, and I'd say, Senator, this is great for you because now you don't have to vote about abortion anymore. This is all going back to the states. You let the people pro-life, pro-choice, they got to fight it out now, state legislature by state legislature. You can't really do that much. The little things you can do are not worth the enormous effort it's going to take. You should be worrying about Ukraine and inflation and the economy and crime. Let's refocus on what's going to get you elected. And abortion, which just is going to succeed in making roughly... You know, 40% of the country hate you no matter what you do. This is not something you can't affect anymore. So this is actually a benefit for you, isn't it? That's what I would have said. Well, yes, except for the fact that, of course, as we've learned over the last decade plus, remaining silent is no longer an option, even if, of course, you're just posturing because you're actually going to have no impact. But I think the other thing that, of course, is a big dirty secret is that a lot of Democrats are actually pro-life. They're against abortion. Huh? Not not all of them, but some critical key votes. I mean, if you recall, Mark Harry Reid was pro-life. He may not have voted that way, but that's that was those were his personal views. I think Manchin is as well. Yes, Manchin, not, Manchin's one of the last ones, yeah. Yeah, the Democratic Party has moved in a different direction, but it's not the slam dunk that people think it is to get these kind of laws passed. That's what I'm trying to say. Right, and also there's, uh, remember, there were used to be pro-choice Republicans like Arlen Specter. Around. He also used um, to be a Republican. They... He also used to be alive, but <laughs> <laughs> he had many transitions before he passed to the other side. Okay, maybe Specter wasn't the best example. P. Wilson. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. of but, California. Right. But it's all right there. They might have a future in the part Republican Party, too, now, because they can say the parties don't need to align themselves about abortion now at the national level because it's really a state matter again. So I want to ask you about these protests that are going on right now. So you've got people, oh, yeah. people outside of Brett Kavanaugh's house. People, Alito apparently has had to like move his family to a secret location. I understand that the, that it's against the law to protest outside a Supreme Court justice's home. The 18 U.S. Code 1507 says that, that anyone with the intent of interfering with obstructing or impeding the administration of justice or with the intent of influencing any judge, juror, witness, court officer in the discharge of his or her duty pickets parades near a building housing a court of the United States or near a building or residence occupied or used by such a judge, juror, and witness or a court officer can be imprisoned for no more than a year or fined. Is it really illegal to go to Justice Kavanaugh's house and scream at him and say, uh, you know, hands off my body? It's uh, really interesting. I'm very uh, impressed, Mark, that you've been reviewing the obstruction of justice statutes. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to think that you only did it because of this case and just don't have a general knowledge of them all the time. (laughs) But, 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 you know, you're exactly the only uh, test of that is how far you can go with those restrictions consistent with the right of free speech, which Mm -hmm. does protect the right of protest. So, you know, they can. They have the right to protest on a public sidewalk. Of course, they usually have to do it at certain times and certain ways. It can't get violent. But if there's a point where the protests start to try to, I don't, I would say like threaten violence or uh, incite people to try to attack justices, then you are getting into obstruction. I mean, this is, I, I mean, the it more, actually, the law I mean, says actually, statu- you can't use a sound truck or similar a device. <laughs> 
It's very specific. Yeah, because I mean, the idea of that statute originally, I think, was people who were trying to intimidate, exactly, intimidate trials, yeah. like with the mafia, you know, mafia, or you know, yeah. try to interfere with the way a trial court has, you know, trying a mafia leader, you know, Al Capone kind of stuff. I don't think it's been applied to the level of the Supreme Court or appellate judges, which usually don't involve. Right? They don't really have proceedings with juries where, or witnesses which could, where people would be intimidated. On the other hand, I don't really remember people critical of a Supreme Court decision ever going to these lengths before. And They've been targeting the justices at home, and they're going to do it you know, consistently and systematically. No, I agree with you. And I think the part of the problem is that we've kind of over the last few years made a transition to to mob justice, which people feel is appropriate. And we saw a manifestation of that on January 6th. But I guess some people believe that mob justice in the right cause is appropriate, whereas mob justice in the wrong cause is inappropriate. Listen, John, I want to ask you an exit question. and We've already kept you longer than we should. You wrote something that was fascinating to me I'll read your quote back to you. Uh, It was in Newsweek. But the reason that it was fascinating to me was because I don't understand, as an American, why it has become appealing to so many to so many to have a dictatorship that is run by the Supreme Court. And here was your quote. You said, as it assumes the power of a legislature, the court has steadily become more political. So it's no surprise in this case you were talking about the Barrett nomination is taking on the character of an electoral campaign. Anyone who cares deeply about abortion, gay marriage, race, religion, or speech can advance their views only by influencing the appointment of federal judges rather than working to win elections. Now, that seems to me to be so fundamentally anti-democratic, and yet so many of these decisions, whether it was upholding Roe or it was gay marriage or it was religious freedom or anything else, has just been dumped in the lap of the courts where people actually have no ability to change it through their vote. Why has this happened, and why do people like it? That may be one of the lessons of this, I hope, is that this leak shows why the court is right to do what it's going to do in Dobbs. Because the leak, right, like I said, you, me, you know, we've seen all that happen in cabinet agencies, the White House. You know, Congress wouldn't work if it weren't for leaks. But it's never happened in the courts before. I don't think there's ever been a full draft opinion leaked ahead of time not just the Supreme Court, but I can't think of any level of federal court ever. You know, we're talking about hundreds of federal courts over many, many years. I can't recall this ever happening. And that's why it's so dangerous is because, as I was suggesting in that passage, what you see, because the courts have taken over these fundamental political issues and you want to change them, you want to affect that policy, the only place you can do it is at the court. You shouldn't be surprised to see more and more political methods invading the court system. And you see it as in the confirmation process. And now you're starting to see it in the way the courts make decisions. We keep going down this road. And I wouldn't be surprised to see leaking multiple leaks in different important cases trying to affect. And then interest groups getting involved trying to affect the decision of the courts in between oral argument and the decision. But why do people accept that rather than saying, let's keep the law and the politics separate. Let's have the courts interpret the Constitution Let's keep their range of cases narrow, and let's keep most political decisions in the hands of the legislatures. I think the reason it happened this way is part of what I was suggesting, what aides would be advising their senators, is in political science models, they say most members of Congress, their main goal is to get reelected. You don't get reelected by taking controversial votes on issues where large numbers of people are going to oppose you next time you're at the polls no matter what you do. So, and you see this actually in lots of other areas of law too, but we have this system where, you know, the members of Congress, you know, presidents, they may complain, but they don't mind that they don't have to make a call on abortion or religion or affirmative action, right? They, they don't mind that that decision gets moved over to another actor where right, those people aren't up for reelection Dereliction and you can attack them when you disagree with them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's dereliction. Hey, John, so what's your prediction? What's going to happen? I think that the interesting thing, again, also from this leak, is that if you're in the conservative majority and the leak's designed to try to get one of them to change their vote, you know, they're getting a lot of political abuse heaped on them now. Why change your vote at this point? <laughs> you're already taken <laughs> all the heat, right? Like you've already gotten all the you know, crap dumped on your head. You already got the protesters outside your house, Justice Kavanaugh. So what's the point of changing? And if you flip in, you're going to be widely disparaged 
as someone who put your view of what the right interpretation of the Constitution was second to whether you don't like taking some political criticism or not. They're the people of all the people in our system, you know, life tenure, permanent salaries. Their jobs are designed to render them less vulnerable to political pressure than anybody else in our system. So I think that the majority is going to stay this way and Roe and Casey are going to get overturned. And then the question is going to return back to the states just in time for the midterm elections. <laughs> oh, but that that is, you know, we may not belongs. like it, but that's where it belongs. That's where it belongs. John, as always, you are so great, thoughtful, uh, clear. Thank you a ton for being game to join us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm always here around for you two to give free legal advice. Thank you. (laughs) And we always need it. So, Danny, this is going to go back to the states, I think. I think think John's right that the Supreme Court is going to strike down Roe. And then, you know what's going to happen? If you live in a red state where the majority of people think abortion is murder— it's not going to be possible to get an abortion in that state or it's going to be severely restricted. And if you live in a blue state where people want to celebrate their abortions, as the, as the phrase is on the, on the left today, then they can light up a Sears Tower or whatever they call it now in, in Illinois. And if you want to get an abortion and you're in one of the states that doesn't allow it, guess what? It's really not that hard to cross state lines these days. You don't need a passport. You can just drive or take a bus or a train or a plane or anything else and go get your abortion in a state that allows it. I just don't think this is the cataclysmic event that the left seems to make it out to be. And I think it's going to allow states where people don't want abortions happening and think it's murder to enact that policy and good for them. Well, I mean, that is the actual outcome, of course. You don't need to think the outcome is this is going to be returned to the states. That's where decisions should be made. Is this going to disadvantage women who don't have the resources to get on a bus or get on a plane or get on a train? Perhaps. And I think what you're going to see is that there are going to be companies like Amazon, for example, and Tesla, for example, that both have announced that they're going to support women who have chosen to get an abortion to go out of state if necessary. Now, of course, I don't think that if you work at Amazon or you work at Tesla, you're necessarily as indigent as as perhaps some of the women who might suffer from this are. But look, that's a fight that's going to have to happen. And if Congress wants to legislate some sort of financial support to women in these states. states can do it. I think Gavin Newsom has said in California is going to make itself, you know, going to pay for women who want to come and get abortions. So if he wants to turn his state into an abortion mill and and pay for people to come from all over the country to do it, that's his prerogative. So one of the things that's interesting to me, and you know, you and I talk a lot about national security, you made the comparison that only seven countries in the world actually permit abortion past 20 weeks. Another interesting point that I think the pro-choice movement tries to make is is that while many countries are moving towards liberalizing their abortion laws, Spain, Ireland, and a few others among them, especially countries with a very strong Catholic community, are moving to liberalize, the United States is moving in the other direction. And I would say that there are two very important points to consider in that regard. One is that while those states are moving to liberalize, they're not moving to liberalize a la New York or a la California. They're moving to liberalize toward the standard of 15 weeks in most cases. And I think another important point is that it's just not the political football that it is in this country in places like Spain and Ireland. It's a topic of debate, but it's not front and center. And that is a uniquely American thing and maybe a little odd in America that it has become such a giant political football. The right place for it to be is for people to be able to vote and decide. Vote your conscience. And now when you vote your conscience, your state can actually make decisions. Your voice matters. Yeah, your voice yep. matters. And I'm not sure I would vote the same way you do on this. I'm sorry there isn't a really strong voice for some kind of moderation here, as opposed to simply the extremes of left and right. I think we probably agree 70%. Yeah, we do. You know, but uh, it's the 30% that matters in this case. <laughs> it's true. But here's a, an even more important point. You know, Mark and I don't agree, and perhaps there are those of you out there who disagree with both of us even more and are more absolutist. But one thing that you've heard in this conversation between us and with our guest is that we're able to have a civil conversation about it. You know, I'm not interested in casting aspersions at Mark for his views because I believe that they're genuinely held passionate moral values on his part. And I As think opposed that, to all my other views that you cast aspersions <laughs> on. <opposed to> all, <laughs> all this Mark's is the, one, of, the <laughs> one view of all all the views you've chosen not to cast dispersions on. This no, is the one. all I'm trying to do, yeah. Mark, is make a point, which I think yes. is a very important one, which is that actually the lack of civility in this debate is disgraceful. 
on the part of all sides. You can be respectful of people who hold their views and who are very wedded to them without going and demonstrating in front of people's houses, without going and casting aspersions on the morals of individuals. It would be nice if for once we could have a civil debate in this country about an issue as important as this one is to many people. I agree with you. And a couple of things I think are really important to close on which is that this is the beginning of the debate, not the end, that this debate has been frozen for a long time. And for those of us on the pro-life side, I hope that we are deliberate in terms of how we do that and recognize that we have a long way to go still to convince our fellow Americans of the humanity of the unborn child. That's where really where it comes down to, because I think that all of us have people who we love who disagree with us on abortion, whatever our position is. And if you are pro-choice and you have someone who's pro-life, I think you look at that person you love and say, they believe it's a child and they believe that killing a child is wrong. And I don't agree with that. But I should be able to respect that because it's a deeply felt view that, that life is and, sacred. And vice, and, versa. And, vice and vice versa. And vice versa. And vice versa. I mean, I have relatives and friends, including my mother was pro-choice, people who I love. And I know that if they thought it was a child with all the dignity and humanity that I believe it has, that they couldn't be for abortion. They just disagree with me on that. And so we need to have a really deep and heartfelt thoughtful. and thoughtful discussion about what abortion is and what the humanity of the unborn child is. And for those of us on the pro-life side, we've got a lot of convincing to do. And we need to be careful not to go in response to this and suddenly try and go way beyond where the American people are in terms of restricting it. We have to get there by convincing people through the democratic process and through through discussion and through debate and through respect. You know, the people we love who disagree with us, they're not murderers. Right? They're, not, they, they're, they're not bad people. They're not bad people. Arthur Brooks always used to say, uh, he has, tells that wonderful story about when he visited a Baptist church on the sign above the door after he was leaving, not on the way in, but on the way out, said, you are entering mission territory. And so the mission territory starts at the Supreme Court door when this decision comes down. And we on our side have a lot of work to do to convince people of the humanity of the unborn child. And I hope we're successful because there have been 63 million abortions since Roe v. Wade. That is, if you believe that, if you believe as I do that those are children, then that's an absolute tragedy of historic proportions. Right. But if you believe as I do that children should not be brought into the world where they are going to be neglected, where they're going to suffer, where they're going to be exposed to, to drugs and crime, where they are going to be injured or killed by their parents, then perhaps the choice is, is, is the right one. But no matter what you believe, you should be respectful. Amen. And that is our mantra for today. Mark and Danny showing unusual Danny. respect for each other. <laughs> but thank you for all listening. Of us, us preaching respectful discussion. Uh, no, there it is. Hard to believe. But yes, from the horse's mouths, indeed. Take care, everybody. Don't hesitate to Email us with your views and share your opinions. We love to hear from you. Take See you care. next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.